Hey everyone, Glenn here at the top of the show with just a, a brief note. What you are about to hear is an episode that Brandon and I recorded in 2018 and then made available on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast in 2019. The story is The Way of Cross and Dragon. It's by George R. R. Martin. And we decided to rebroadcast it here on Elder Sign because the story came up in our previous Borges episode and also because really it belongs here. We had put this episode on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast because when we recorded it, we weren't publishing Elder Sign episodes yet, and we had received this as a, a commission, and otherwise it would have just been here all along. And this story, as you're going to hear us talk about in just a little bit, this story is part of Martin's Thousand Worlds story cycle, and we have covered Sand Kings here as well, which is a part of that cycle. And so, yeah, for all these reasons, it really just belongs here. And I love these stories, these Thousand Worlds stories. I will be frank here, honest here. I would trade every single sentence of A Song of Ice and Fire for even just a few more of these stories, maybe even for just one more of these stories. And in fact, I love them so much that I have started doing a solo podcast series on them. Now, to be clear up front, it is a slow series. I'm going to do only one a year, and so far, in fact, have only done one of them, though I also have just taken the book off the shelf so that I can start working on the second. I'm airing these on Patreon. They come out early in the year, probably February or March is going to be the, the target there. And if that's something that you're interested in, uh, I hope I'll see you there. Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. In this episode, we're actually not discussing the work of Gene Wolfe, but instead we're doing a story by George R. R. Martin, who of course people know of as the author of Game of Thrones. I think one thing most people don't know about George R. R. Martin, though many fans might already, is that he was a writer of a lot of TV series, uh, including Beauty and the Beast, starring Ron Perlman and Linda <laughs> Hamilton. Uh, and he wrote a lot of short stories also that have been adapted into episodes of The Outer Limits or uh, The New Twilight Zone. He was a prolific writer before he made it big in the early 90s with Game of Thrones. In this episode, though, we're talking about his story, The Way of Cross and Dragon, which was originally published in Omni in 1979. We read it in Martin's collection, Dream Songs, Volume 1. Glenn, why are we covering this story? <laughs> right. We're, we're covering this story today because uh, a listener has commissioned us to, to do it. This is a service that we offer. And uh, if you're a patron on Patreon, of course, you can get a good discount on this. And uh, you can even get a free one at some levels. So if there is something you'd like us to cover, let us know. This is also how we covered Black Dog by Neil Gaiman. And uh, we've got a, a second patron commission episode coming up uh, pretty soon. And, you know, I think we, we love these digressions. And I think we especially love seeing how some of these other stories relate to Wolf's own work. Uh, and that's something we're definitely going to see in this story, which imagines a, a Catholic Inquisition in space in the far future. Uh, but I think with that preamble, I think let's just get into the recap. Brandon, can you take us through this story? This story is uh, about 20 big pages long. You know, the, the Dream Songs is a, is a big volume. And for people who are familiar with uh, George R. R. Martin's writing, there's a lot I'm going to leave out because he's so descriptive and he and he spends a lot of time dealing with world building even in a short story and 
because the world building isn't a big part of the plot here, uh, I'm going to stick to the plot. Well, I'll be interjecting with lots of world building because I think that's everyone knows that's my primary value. That's what I go to these speculative fiction stories for, and this one in particular is I think pretty pretty ripe for uh, doing some uh, some some history of the of the speculative world that's in here. The story begins with our protagonist, whose name we come to learn uh, later in the story is Father Damien. Now, Father Damien is meeting with someone named Torgathon Nine Claris Tune who is the Grand Inquisitor of the Order Militant of the Knights of Jesus Christ. Damien is in Torgathon's receiving chamber, which is a sort of waiting pool. And Torgathon has called a meeting with Damien in order to give him a new mission, a new cause. Damien is to search out the root of a new heresy against the church. Damien, though, was hoping he would be able to get some time off after his last difficult job. But Torgathon says that that is out of the question. So here we learn a little bit about Damien's last mission and a little bit about the kind of work the Order Militant of the Knights of Jesus Christ does. Damien's last mission was on a planet, I suppose, called Finnegan. And to Damien's mind, it really didn't go that well. Even though he was able to shut down some of the communication networks of the heretics, riots occurred on Finnegan, and many heretics were killed along with other devout Christians. But Torgathan isn't concerned about the death of heretics or even of the death of Christian martyrs. To him, this is just the sort of thing that happens when you are a believer of a true faith. At this point, it's explicit to us in the text that Torgathan is an alien creature. He is one of the Ka'thun who must apparently be continually soaked in water. He's a grotesque figure in the story. But this environment, this wading pool, this disgusting creature being soaked in water is uncomfortable and a little disgusting for a human like Damien. So Damien doesn't want to talk anymore about his last job. So he pushes Torgathun to get more information about the new heresy so he can get out of there. Martin front loads this story pretty heavily with a lot of characterization and a lot of world building. One of the things we see here right away is that that Torgathon and our narrator, Father Damien, have, I think, wildly different sentiments about combating heresy and, and perhaps even different understandings about what it means to be an Inquisition in, in the first place. Torgathon is only concerned about orthodoxy, and he has no qualms at all about letting people die so long as their souls have been saved. But this seems to make Father Damien, I think, pretty uncomfortable. And it seems that he feels like his mission to Finnegan has been a failure because he couldn't avoid this, this violence, these riots. So my sense is that he is actually interested in maintaining the social harmony that orthodoxy can provide rather than in maintaining the orthodoxy for its own sake. And that is a, a tension here that Father Damien has with his own institution that is set is really going to set up kind of his character arc right from the start. Yeah, absolutely. Father Damien, as we're going to find out later on in the story, does have a, a deep and devout faith. But what he learns about what his faith is, is one of the driving elements of this plot. 
Yeah, he also seems here since this episode on Finnegan to have lost his passion for this work in the first place. And I mean, he is actually now beginning to have doubts about his faith. He does say that he believes, uh, but that the new beliefs and the new questionings of heretics that he's been encountering have are echoing in his head and they're troubling his dreams. This also is, I think, a nice bit of important character development that's going to drive the emotional arc of this story. But there's also a massive dose of world building just injected like right on the first page of this story. And some of the aspects of this are, I think, interesting for Game of Thrones fans. We get a, a mass of names and titles just thrown thrown really in our face right at the start here. But what we're meant to understand, of course, is that Torgathan Nine Clarice Toon is an archbishop of the Catholic Church in space in the, the far future. But he's also a member of an order within the church, which is the Knights of Jesus Christ. And they are inquisitors. That is to say, they fight heresy. But Martin gives us the phrase here, order militant, and he combines that with the title Lord Commander. And so we can already see the fascination with medieval military orders like the Knights Templars and the Hospitallers that will uh, you know, eventually go on to become the Knights Watch in Game of Thrones. And it's just interesting to see him playing with that idea, or at least some of the, some of the images of it already. It makes me want to read more Martin short stories to just see his development of these ideas and pull them out of his earlier writing as he makes way for his magnum opus, which is The Song of Ice and Fire. Well, let's get back to the heresy that Damien is called into the meeting to learn about. The heresy has its locus on a planet called Arion. It is a human world. And as a caffeine, Torgathon is dismayed by the manner in which humans are so easily corruptible in regards to their faith. The Kathun are not like that. Once the Kathun believe something, they seem to believe it eternally. Uh, but they're also slow to believe something new. In any event, the church does not have a real stronghold on Arian. But because the heresy is so easily disprovable, this should really prove an easy mission for Damien. And the Destruction of this heresy might even yield the church some new converts. But Damien now feels like he needs to ask about the nature of the heresy itself. And as he's writing this in first person, he comments to the reader that it is a sad indication of the state of his own faith that he doesn't actually care about the answer. He asked the question more out of a sense of propriety than of his own interest. The number of heretics and heresies that he has dealt with have led him to have doubts of his own, as you said, Glenn. And there are over 700 different Christian sects now in the universe. Some of them are even as large as the interstellar Catholic Church of the Earth and the Thousand Worlds, the new name for Catholic, which I find hilarious because Catholic already means universal. So right. uh, for me, this is a little bit of overkill. Um, but the heresy is this. The church on Arion has made a saint out of Judas Iscariot. Yeah, we get some more world building notes in this this conversation up to this. And one of them is that we learned that the, the Pope who had ruled that non-humans could serve as clergy was Pope Vetus the 50th. So this is one of the ways that we know that we are super duper far in the in the future here. And there's some other some other world building notes like that here. But we'll, we'll get into those more in the discussion. But we are right now we're at an act break. And I think that since we are at an act break, we perhaps should just pause to talk about Judas Iscariot in in the text of the Gospels before we get introduced to the speculative religion that Martin is going to build up around the figure of Judas. 
Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 disciples of Christ, but in the end, he betrayed Christ by telling the cops where Christ was hiding uh, in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. As a result of this, Christ was crucified. Judas himself doesn't live much longer than that. And of course, there are four Gospels and therefore four slightly different versions of this story. And the case of Judas is one of the few instances in which even the synoptic Gospels can be hard to actually reconcile. So he's a you know, super interesting and also super important figure in Christianity. One of the general problems of Judas is not made explicit in this story, is that it was necessary for Christ to be sacrificed the way he was in Christian theology in order that mankind could be redeemed with regard to their sins, their falling short of God's expectation of them. The question that bothers some people and bothers, I think, uh, George R.R. Martin as he's thinking about this story is if Judas had not betrayed Jesus, then would Jesus have been crucified? Would he have been found and, and hung on the cross? And, and would all of the uh, necessities of atonement uh, taken place on the cross? And if it is the case that it was necessary for Christ to be hung on the cross for the redemption of mankind, then isn't Judas's work also equally necessary? And why do we regard him as an evil figure instead of somebody who is crucial in the redemption of mankind, as crucial maybe as Christ. And this is a real serious theological question that, that, people, that people have had for literally 2,000 years. And this is still an issue of contention around some Christian churches today, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, uh, and a few other uh, denominations of Christianity have sort of, I, I guess maybe we would say softer views, softer feelings towards Judas Iscariot, who we should say in Dante's uh, Inferno is the center of hell. He is frozen in the icy center of hell. He is the worst sinner who has ever been. But there are Christian sects who have softer views on this. And that is one of the things that Martin is kind of envisioning here. And we're going to get more into this in the discussion, but let's return to the story for now. As you said, Glenn, we are we are at a section break, and the new section opens with some information about Damien. He is a senior knight inquisitor, and as a result, he's able to command his own starship, a starship that he has named the Truth of Christ. The ship is crewed by six members of the Order of St. Christopher the Far-Traveling, and a captain who we learn uh, very shortly is not a believer. Because of the crew and their ability to do all the work that they do, Damien has no duties on the ship. And so he's able to spend the next three weeks, which is the travel time between uh, Vess and Arion, preparing his case against the sainthood of Judas Iscariot. And one thing he has with him as a, as a tool to do this is the founding document of the heresy, which is called the Way of Cross and Dragon. Yeah, much of the next five or six pages is going to be the recounting of what is in this text. So before we get there, I just want to talk a little bit about some of the things we learn about the the spaceship, some of the things we learn in the description of this spaceship. The first thing is that the ship actually used to be called the St. Thomas. This uh, referred you know, not to Thomas Aquinas, but to St. Thomas the Apostle, who is uh, colloquially known as Doubting Thomas because uh, he required hardcore serious business material evidence before 
before he would believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. And he got it, by the way. So, you know, his doubting isn't some kind of like permanent condition and cautious might actually be a better label than doubting. Uh, And of course, he went on to evangelize in India and is still revered today as the founder of the Christian church in India. We're also introduced here uh, to this real just background detail, right, that the ship is crewed by six brothers and sisters of the Order of St. Christopher. St. Christopher you know, is widely known in pop culture as the, the patron saint of travelers. You can get little St. Christopher bobbleheads you know, at your local gas station on the interstate and whatnot. Uh, so that's a nice world-building touch here to envision a sort of special order within the church that runs spaceships. I would probably sign up to be a part of that. Yeah, it's awesome. And we do get a little more information about this order and, and, and the way they protect travelers. It is a cool world-building note. Well, Damien has to figure out about this heresy. So what he does is he reads the text, The Way of the Cross and Dragon, in order to understand the heresy. But before long, he's just drawn into its story. The Way of Cross and Dragon tells the tale of Judas Iscariot, who was born of a whore in Babylon on the same day that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Judas had a rough childhood in Babylon, we're told, and he began experiencing with the dark arts, as many uh, young teenagers do when they have a rough (laughs) childhood. It's basically the first goth, we find out. Um, But eventually, he becomes a skilled necromancer. Using his new skills, Judas becomes the only person who's ever been alive to tame dragons, the great winged fire lizards from old earth. And There's a picture in the book that Damien really likes of Judas taming dragons. And there are many pictures in this book that Damien really, really comes to love. Well, Judas's fame as a dragon tamer grows, I guess, and and it allows him to become the ruler of Babylon. We get a sense that he has conquered other places and usurped the rightful ruler of Babylon. And and it's because of his ability to to tame dragons that he's able to do this. So he is the king of Babylon. While he rules Babylon, he instructed that the hanging gardens be built and hung. So we're getting this, you know, creator of one of the first uh, of of one of the original seven wonders of the world here and and this really leads to our sense of Judas as being a, a major historical figure. And indeed, he sits in the hanging gardens while he tries Jesus for being a troublemaking prophet. And Jesus does the thing Jesus does when he's on trial, which is to not really answer questions. (laughs) And Judas gets really upset. So Judas has his guards cut Jesus's legs off, and he casts Jesus into the streets with the instruction for Christ to heal himself. And this is a uh, kind of one of these temptations of Christ where he says, uh, physician, heal thyself. But after this event, Judas has a vision and he gives up everything. He gives up his crown and his riches and the dark arts and becomes the legs of the Lord. And he carries Jesus around for a year or so. And during that time, obviously, is they're back to back or something like that most of the time, Jesus and Judas become very close. And Judas, it sounds like in this uh, mythology of Christianity, becomes the beloved, which is a title that's reserved for John, uh, the apostle. And as a result, Jesus gives Judas the gift of tongues. And Jesus also sanctifies the dragons that Judas had sent away. 
And Jesus does this in order to commission Judas to spread the message of Jesus really from the back of a dragon. And this is a retelling of the Great Commission, which is a really interesting part of the gospel, because we think of the gospel as having as, as something as being as something that takes place after Jesus's death and resurrection. But the Great Commission is Jesus sending out many apostles, not the twelve, uh, but many others, to spread the news of his arrival to other peoples and places. Well, as Judas is doing this, uh, he's on the back of the dragon one day, riding around, spreading the good news, and the skies turn dark. So Judas returns home, and he finds Christ, who has already been crucified, hanging on a cross. And at this moment, Judas's faith falters. So he exercises his wrath and his greatness, rather than his meekness, I suppose you would put that in uh, conflict with. On Jerusalem, he raises the temple, which is something that in the Gospels happens when Jesus dies. The temple veil rends into two. Judas goes about causing all this sort of havoc, and he finds Peter, and he discovers that Peter had denied Christ three times. So Judas kills Peter by strangling him. And then Judas sends his dragons out to start funeral piles all over Jerusalem for Jesus of Nazareth. But when Jesus rises on the third day, Judas weeps. And in the text, it's Judas wept, which is, you know, a play on the shortest verse of the Bible, which is Jesus wept, which is what happens after Jesus discovers that his close friend Lazarus has died and he has done nothing to prevent it. His Lazarus is sisters kind of put Jesus on trial for letting Lazarus die. But this is definitely a play on that. In this text, Judas wept, but he could not turn Christ's anger at him aside. He recognizes what he did was wrong. He is weeping, but he cannot yet attain forgiveness from Christ. And it's because acting so wrathfully betrayed Christ's teaching. And again, I just have to say, this is this is absolutely put in conversation with the Beatitudes, which, where meekness can be seen as something like uh, keeping the sword sheathed. It doesn't mean you don't have a sword. It just means you don't use it. And And this is what Judas does. So Jesus calls off all the dragons, and he puts them away, and he resurrects Peter, and now Peter has dominion over the church. And this is the Catholic church that we all know, the rock, Peter, Caiaphas, on which the church is built. So all the dragons are dead. Judas's gifts, including the gift of tongues and of healing, are taken back by Jesus, and Judas is blinded. And this is a play on uh, the story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus as well. Christ tells Judas that he will be remembered as a betrayer only, and that his name would be cursed, and all of his great works, his kingdom, his being a ruler, his being a dragon tamer, will be forgotten. But Christ also does love Judas. So he grants Judas an extended life. And this is for Judas's sake, so that Judas can consider his sins and eventually come to an authentic kind of forgiveness. So Judas wanders the earth for a long time, and all the things that Jesus promised eventually come to pass. And Judas and Jesus meet once more on Judas's deathbed, and they reconcile. And on the deathbed, 
Christ promises Judas that a select few would remember who Judas really was, and that eventually that news would spread until Peter's lie about Judas is displaced and forgotten. And that is the way of the cross and dragon. I absolutely love the story of St. Judas Iscariot that we get here. Uh, there is a lot going on, including an awful lot that suggests that he was a, a member of House Targaryen. He's a dragon tamer, and he uses his dragons to conquer an empire for himself. Uh, perhaps more importantly, Martin has drawn on a lot of ancient history and ancient literature in his construction of St. Judas. Uh, I don't want to parse that out here. You've alluded to a lot of it already, Brandon, but we'll spend uh, a lot of time on this in the discussion. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. There's also some very good writing in the story of Judas as well. First, there's a, a clever bit about how Christ uses his holy powers to arrange for the truth about Judas to be forgotten, uh, which allows for this story to be true while not forcing the story of Judas in Christian scripture to be a human fabrication. Both stories can be a part of Christ's plan. This is kind of a, you know having your cake and eating it too. Uh, but then there is a sentence here that I, I just love, so I'll, I'll read it. Once Dragon King, once the friend of Christ... Now he was only a blind traveler, outcast and friendless, wandering all the cold roads of the earth, living still when all the cities and people and things he had known were dead. That's a haunting, haunting line. This is some, some beautiful prose. It is really good prose. And I think sentence for sentence, this story beats anything that George R.R. R. Martin has written in the, in the Game of Thrones as well. I can't imagine the pressure of writing a manuscript like what George R. R. Martin has written for the Game of Thrones. And there are great examples of his powers as a storyteller at play in those series. But I think uh, some of his prose really shines in this short fiction. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Martin's early science fiction and especially his his horror and maybe you might say sci-fi horror stories. I think he's an absolutely marvelous wordsmith. Fans of his shouldn't stop at A Song of Ice and Fire. And, and really, this story is a great example of, I think, his real, real powers as prosaic writer. Well, after finishing The Way of Cross and Dragon, Damien hands the text off to his captain, who we said already is not a believer. Her name is Arla K. Bao, uh, and she finds it interesting. She thinks that it's easier to read than the Bible that Damien carries around. But Damien pushes back here on the matter. Aren't the elements that make up the text absurd? Arla pushes back. Are these elements in The Way of Cross and Dragon actually any more absurd than, say, the man living in the belly of the fish or water changing into wine? Damien doesn't have a good answer. He just says that there is a difference in the subject matters. And Arla asks superficially what the difference is, but she really just sees past Damien's mask. She knows that he found the book interesting, and he does too. And this is exciting for Damien on some level, because it's a real heresy to fight against, rather than the typical sorts of quibbles that he has to go after. And ultimately, Damien's just really excited to meet this heresy's founder, Lucian Judas' son. Uh, it's awesome how 
Martin has his own narrator praise the backstory that Martin himself has just written. He has a character in his story call it entertaining, imaginative, and daring. And I think this is the biggest lesson that I'm going to take from this piece. I absolutely need to start having my characters pause and talk about how awesome the story that I'm writing is. Uh, why am I not doing that? I don't know. You got to hire them to blurb those uh, things for the front for story <laughs> collections. Yeah, yeah. A lot of lessons to be learned here. Uh, but of course, as you pointed out, what really matters is that Damien says that the story of St. Judas is ridiculous because it has supernatural elements. But this non-religious kind of atheistic captain of his spaceship points out that the Bible also has supernatural elements. And that's, I think, one of the tensions that Martin himself on a, on a personal level is is dealing with in this story. And he has some comments in the introduction to this story in the anthology that talk about that. And we'll, we'll bring those up in the discussion. Finally, Damien's ship lands on Arion. We learn a few things about this planet. It's a sparsely populated planet with only one city called Amadon, uh, which is known as the Porcelain City. It's a world where tolerance and the arts flourish. There are many religious sects besides Christianity present on the planet, but there are only nine churches of the one true interstellar Catholic faith. Not long ago, there had been 12, but three of those churches had converted to the order of St. Judas Iscariot, and the order of St. Judas Iscariot has also been able to build about a dozen additional churches as well. And some of the religions that are on this planet, I think, are really interesting. Martin gives us aestheticism, which is hardly a religion at all, the narrator says. There are Taoists, there are Ericaners, Old True Christers, and Children of the Dreamer. These are some real cool names. We're going to find out in just a few pages that the Ericaners are the followers of Erica Storm Jones. So that's all we're going to learn. I suppose maybe Ericaners is probably how you actually pronounce that, but I'm finding that difficult to wrap my brain around. Uh, but some of these names too, especially Children of the Dreamer, these are names or, or similar to names that we will encounter you know, in Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire as well. So we can see him here even doing more of that that practice, I guess we might say, for his his magnum opus. Yeah, this note about Erica Storm Jones uh, could take us far afield from this story, but I do want to look into more of Martin's writing and see if he's written about this new prophet who's been able to spawn a religion uh, that potentially rivals Christianity, or she's put up there with Buddha and Christ as a, as a major uh, prophet or teacher, but we don't learn any more about her in this story. But the name certainly suggests that she's an antecedent to Daenerys Stormborn Targaryen, who is in some ways doing something similar or something similar is being done with her story and with her identity in A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, I will say I have read other stories in this setting. We do encounter this name again, but I don't think we ever really get much more about it. This is uh, Martin's sort of technique of world building by you know throwing a bunch of names on the page. It's how Star Trek does it, too. Yeah, it really works for this story, though it does raise some questions about the real value of this Inquisition. <laughs> but but uh, that's all right. The, the Bishop of Arion uh, meets Damien, and they briefly discuss the heresy, and Damien is pretty aggressive with this bishop on this planet. Uh, as they dine, the bishop gives a brief history of the Judas sect, and as Damien listens to this, he is convinced that he has to meet Lucian himself. Damien prepares for the meeting by dressing in a really intimidating fashion. He wears ceremonial garments and makeup that makes his eyes look bigger and darker uh, for the occasion. 
and it's kind of a great great moment in the story this guy it's like he's getting ready to for a football game you know he's putting on the eye makeup and the pads and everything and he's gonna go out there and just rough this guy up and it's it's kind of cool to see damien uh taking his job seriously and really engaging with the ceremony of his job because up to this point we've only seen him have doubts about his work well i love that you saw this as something akin to getting ready to go play a football game because uh i really saw this as anticipating the goth culture of the 1990s father damien wears a a severe black suit with burgundy lapels he does cover his face in white powder so he's gonna look like a corpse and then he paints his eyes and his nails black i mean this is everything i wanted to look like in high school i had so much and and nostalgia simultaneously reading this passage yeah i guess i was just going for like a gearing up for the game sort of thing but uh yeah the dark priest sure that's also there (laughs) i think your reading is the better reading (laughs) (laughs) this is not the first goth i've encountered in literature i suppose well damien now has to go to the house of saint judas iscariot which is inhabited by lucian and Damien takes with him his bodyguard sister, Judith, and we learn a little bit here. I'm not going to go into it, but the two go into the house or the grounds of the house, and they find no guards or even a receptionist. And while they're climbing the steps to the main house, a blonde, fat man appears and smiles welcomingly at them. Uh, He wears pretty shabby clothes, but his robes are embroidered with the sigils of the cross and the dragon. This man is, of course... Lucian Judason. Damien does not smile back at Lucian, and he tells Lucian that he has some questions for him. The men then go and enter Lucian's office, and behind the desk is a painting of Judas, blinded and weeping over his dragons. And this is an image that had evoked a lot of feeling in Damien previously. Lucian sits down while Damien stands and asks to be addressed informally as Luke, as his church doesn't really have the same use for hierarchy as the Catholic Church. But because Luke was once a priest of the Catholic Church and has not officially been excommunicated, Damien insists that he address Lucian as befits his station. Damien places the way of cross and dragon down on the table and tells Lucian that he has abandoned the faith Lucian has abandoned the faith and is prepared to hear all of the typical lies that heretics provide when they show up with a new gospel like this. But Lucian just doesn't engage on that level. Instead, Lucian tells Damien that he's just made the whole thing up. And Damien is really taken aback by this admission. But Lucian has some explaining to do yeah i was shocked by this line too i mean it was an it was an absolute shock to me everything up until this point is building towards a confrontation between father damien and lucian judas son but then lucian just admits he made up the whole story that his new religion is just a con so what now is going to be the conflict i mean this is a real game changer within in the story. I mean, this is some, some masterful, uh, you know, storytelling here in which we have all of these uh, anticipations about where the story is heading, about what type of story this is that we're reading that, you know, of course, are, are based upon the fact that we've read a thousand stories before. And Martin turns that over on its head and is going to tell a different story. And of course, this is what he is known for in A Song of Ice and Fire or the TV show Game of Thrones is exactly this type of twist. This one's a little less bloody than, than the ones he's most famous for, but it's cool to see that here as well it really demonstrates martin's mastery over 
plot. And I, I mean, in terms of plot, I don't really know if the the third book of uh, Song and Ice and Fire really is topped in, in our current age. It is one of the most masterfully plotted stories I've ever read. And you see that this is just who he is. This is in his DNA as a writer is these sorts of game changers. And I think for aspiring writers, it's an excellent lesson to learn from him is what do your characters do if the rug is pulled out from under them? And how do you still tell a compelling story? And Martin really pulls off telling a compelling story here with the rug pulled out from under us. Right. Well, now we've got still really the whole third act of this story, which I think is really very interesting. So Brandon, why don't you take us home with this? Well, as I said, Lukian really just dumps a lot of exposition here in the last act of this story. He explains a lot of what is going on. We learn that Lukian's true vocation is uh, as part of an organization known as The Liars. There are many of these people, many of these members, and while there are some things that Lukian cannot share, perhaps because he is a very low order in the organization, Lukian is willing to share what he knows about the organization of The Liars with Damien. The Liars do have faith. They have faith in living life and resisting death. And that happiness is a good to be sought after. They don't believe in an afterlife or a supreme being and a complex moral code. They approach life in light of its naked and brutal truths, which include the uncaring nature of the universe towards life. Damien responds that this is not a true philosophy in that, you know, it, it's not actually the truth. But he himself has been haunted by these sorts of doubts and thoughts. Lukian thinks that it is good that Damien has been haunted by these thoughts because that means that Damien understands the nature of his philosophy so well, and it makes Damien nearly a liar already. Real truth is unbearable for most men, Lukian continues. Yet believers in religion are often the happy ones. This is something that they've learned throughout history. And so it is up to the liars to invent the sorts of lies that propel civilizations and religions and provide consolation for their participators and followers. This is something that Plato calls the noble lie in the Republic. As the liars have not stumbled across the great lie that will unite all humanity yet, they must rely on the thousand or so little lies that they can use. Damien is, of course, incensed by Lukian's admission to being a member of this organization and also that this organization exists at all because Damien's life has been a quest for the truth. But Lukian says that Damien has not actually quested for the truth, but that Damien instead has defeated the smaller lies that detract from the great lie that he serves. So Damien fires back. If the lie of the church is so great, why has Lucian, a liar, abandoned it? So Lucian responds that a lie and a religion need to fit their context and time. And that the life of Judas, as he has imagined it, is a perfect fit for Arian. It's a religion that will thrive here. And in any event, Lucian believes that since the organization of liars is so old, it wouldn't surprise him if he learned that members of its order wrote the original Gospels in the first place. At this, though, Damien has simply heard enough. He calls Lucian a fanatic and tells him that he pities the loss of his faith. But Lucian says that he's happy to have found something new to serve. 
and that it is actually Damien who was tortured and miserable. And at this, Damien screams that this is a lie. Lucian is unfazed by Damien's outburst and asks that he follow him to the cellar. So Lucian leads Damien behind the panel with the painting uh, of Judas that we just talked about down the stairs. In the basement is a creature like an embryo, another kind of grotesque creature floating in a tank. This creature's name is John Azure Cross, a liar of the fourth circle. The creature is also a telepath, a kind of distasteful breed of creatures in this universe. John is there to aid Lucian in his lying, to help him lie more efficiently. John can tell when somebody believes a faith is true. And Lucian and John can communicate due to an implant in Lucian's head. John recruited Lucian to the liars when he discovered that Lucian's own faith was empty. And so they kind of created this lie together and used the skill of telepathy to test whether or not it would catch on easily. At this point, John speaks to Damien directly. John tells Damien that he finds Damien's faith empty now, too. Damien is sick and tired, and he's just lost faith. Damien, now confronted with these thoughts, searches himself, and he finds nothing. He is empty. He's only full of questions and pain. But he does have something he did and always will believe in. Damien believes that there is a truth that can be known, even when it hurts. And John Cross senses this faith, this belief in truth in Damien, and tells Lucian that Damien is lost to the order of the liars. Now with this, Damien feels fear, because he knows that he was there really to be recruited, and that having learned so much about the liars, he may not be allowed to leave. But John tells Damien that they cannot be hurt. He can leave in peace, and that Lucian has told Damien nothing of value. Well, that's the end of the main story, but we're treated with a section break and really what amounts to an epilogue. We learn that Damien has spent more years traveling and reflecting on this event that took place on Arion. Eventually, he is granted the break, the rest he so desperately needs by Torgathon. And while he's resting, Damien reflects on this event, as I said, and realized that John may have hoped that Damien would come and destroy the Order of St. Judas. Because in doing so, Damien would have been trapped between destroying the Order of St. Judas or the Order of the Liars. And because John knew that Damien would never be able to expose the existence of the Liars, he would be left destroying this Order. It's just too crazy of a thing for anyone to believe that there was this order of liars, and there's no proof of their existence either. After he rests and reflects, Damien returns to Torgathon in order to turn in his badge and gun, so to speak. He wants to retire from service. Damien explains to Torgathon that he has just lost his faith. But this actually isn't a problem for Torgathon at all. Damien is really good at his job, and he will not be permitted to resign. This news, I think, shocks Damien a little bit. And Damien writes this at the end of the story. The truth will set us free. But freedom is cold and empty and frightening. And lies can often be warm and beautiful. 
And this is now the last line of the story. Last year, the church finally granted me a new and better ship. I named this one the Dragon. This is a great end to the the story that I think ultimately amounts to a a cautionary tale about the pitfalls of bad management. You got to let your employees take some vacations from time to time or they're going to get burnt out. I think that's what the story is about. That's how I read it, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually have some questions here about the plot and some of these revelations that pop up in Act 3. So let's just move straight into our discussion. Well, so mostly what I'm going to want to talk about, of course, is world building. And we tease that really right at the top of the show. But I do have some plot questions here. So let's start with those. The first one really is, is, is this. So Father Damien comes to believe that the invention of the way of cross and dragon was all just some kind of plot to ensnare him and that... Uh, John Azure Cross didn't care about the new religion, the Judas religion, so long as Father Damien finally lost his faith. Is that I was confused about how to see this story from the perspective of John Azure Cross. I didn't quite read it as the, as devilish, I think, as you did, though. I think you're you're picking up on a level of like uh, a satanic antagonism there, where the point of John Azure Cross is there to actually destroy the faith of true believers, or at least exploit doubt and tear those holes open bigger. I actually read it more as an elaborate plot to get Damien, who is a super effective heresy hunter, to join the cause of the liars and join their order and maybe work from within. This is is a troubling part of the story for me as well, uh, because the plot doesn't quite mesh at the end. I think George R. R. Martin is encountering, as I said in the in the recap, Plato's idea of the noble lie and trying to literalize it or instantiate it or embody it in this universe and turn it into an interesting conspiracy rather than the normal uh, functioning of politics, which is how it works. And another example of the noble lie is found uh, kind of famously in The Dark Knight, the Christopher Nolan film, where Harvey Dent claims to be Batman in order that Batman can continue do, doing what he's doing and that the face of the real justice in the in Gotham and the person fighting for real justice is also the face of the person working behind the scenes uh, to create justice, even though it's vigilanteism. So th- that's kind of the noble lie functioning in another pop culture example. I'm not exactly sure what George R. R. Martin's relationship with this idea is. And it comes across as muddled to me as well. I think muddled is probably the, the right word for them. I mean, there's a lot going on in this story that really just reads like almost a kind of um, angsty cynicism towards religion uh, without a real sort of clear point. Uh, and so the other question that I have about this is, are we meant to understand, you know, from this, this epilogue from this last line of the story, this naming of his new ship, the dragon that father Damien has in some way, whether it's just in his heart or like literally actually signed up has he, he's become a liar. He's, he's joined the order of the liars in some sense. Is that right? That's also not my reading of the story either. I, re- I, I do take, I do take father Damien at his word when he says he believes in truth and he is seeking out, truth. I think he's fatigued by this heresy work, and maybe he definitely recognized that he serves a greater lie, but maybe his hope is that this fractionalism, this sectionalism, will continue and break the whole church down, and that the lies will result in in kind of endless little end of the egg, big end of the egg 
problems and fracture the whole church itself. And then he won't have to serve a greater lie. And so in some ways he is serving truth by trying to take down the lie from within. And that's kind of the way I read the story. I don't think he's serving the liars at the end of the story. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Right. So when he says here that, that, you know, he believes in the truth because the truth will set us free and then says freedom is cold and empty and frightening and lies can often be warm and beautiful. Uh, it does seem that really what's happened here is he has lost his faith, but he's still going to continue to work for that faith because even if it is a lie, it is a, a lie that is worth believing because of the warmth and beauty that it, it gives to people. Right, exactly. But I think because of his commitment to the truth and his newfound, I don't know, maybe you'd call it radical freedom, or at least the fantasy of radical freedom, I do think there's a a sinister element to this ending of the story, Uh, particularly the name of the dragon here, which is uh, satanic imagery, but also kind of Arthurian imagery as well. Well, we'll come back uh, to the liars and their beliefs and their goals. I have more questions about that, but I, I want to take a detour, really a long detour, uh, through some world building, because I think this is where this story really shines. And also, you know, it's the thing I go to SF for, and it's my turn to guide the discussion. So that's what we're going to do. So this story is part of Martin's speculative setting called The Thousand Worlds. We, we even get that phrase used here in the story, uh, it's exactly what it says on the box. It's a, a far future space civilization with, you know, a thousand or so worlds. He has probably about three dozen stories and novellas that are set in this world. Uh, these include, you know, his famous and really excellent story, Sand Kings, uh, as well as his ecological science fiction stories about tough, which are collected in tough voyaging, and also his novella Night Flyers, which has just been turned into a TV show that I haven't seen yet. Uh, but as usual, I, I think it will be fun to try to understand this setting just using the evidence that we have in this story, especially since it's the only one we've covered so far. Uh, and really, we'll focus on just two things, right? The, the, the church and then also this gospel of St. Judas. And I think actually, let's start there. Let's start with Judas. And I think probably the first thing that we should do, though we did some of this in the recap, is to point out the different places where this story of St. Judas Iscariot uh, parallels the Christ story or intersects with aspects of of Christianity, where these elements of the Christ story, elements of Christianity are being sort of appropriated into Judas's story. We're just going to make a, a catalog, really. I think the first place I want to start is this child of prophecy bit that opens the story. It's it's embedded and buried a little bit into the text, and it's quickly passed over. But basically, what we're dealing with is uh, two children born on the same day under the same star sign. One is born in Babylon and, of course, uh, born to a whore. Whore of Babylon is a famous apocalyptic image in the book of Revelation. This is the the, uh, the deceiver of worlds, basically. Uh, and so we're getting this imagery with Judas right off the bat of being almost an antagonistic but shadow figure of Christ. That's the first thing George R.R. R. Martin does. This same type of question of the child of prophecy is brought up in the Harry Potter books, where uh, Neville Longbottom is born on the same day as Harry Potter. And it's really the choice of Voldemort. Voldemort chooses his rival uh, in Harry instead of in Neville Longbottom. And that's kind of what makes Harry who he is. Uh, Something weirdly similar is going on here. And 
I bring this up, this this child of prophecy thing, because this question is really excellently explored in uh, a story by Jorge Luis Borges called The Three Versions of Judas, which I recommend everybody read, um, which asserts something similar, that that it turns out that Judas is the real son of God, the real person of low birth, of the lowest birth, who makes the ultimate sacrifice and actually descends into hell and stays there. There's all these parallels in the story. So it's really fascinating when you start digging into what's going on between Judas and Jesus. It's at least as fascinating as what's going on between Judas and John the Baptist um, when they're spouting the same message and people are confused about who is who early on in the gospel accounts of Jesus's life. So that's the first thing we have. They are kind of shadow figures of one another. Judas is the embodiment, in a sense, of the person who takes Satan up on one of his offers to rule the world with, uh, you know, they can be co-rulers of the world, Satan and Jesus. Jesus turns this down, but we see Judas become this great ruler and this great king and even be the tamer of dragons. I think that that imagery is not a mistake here in this story. So we get the sense here, again, of this shadow figure of Christ, where Christ uh, denies this temptation because he knows what his mission is. Judas kind of picks it up and runs with it. But his real encounter with Christ, which is uh, an image right out of the story of Christ's trial with Pilate, which is dramatized in The Master and Margarita, which also deals with Judas in an interesting way, is fascinating because we don't really have any accounts of Jesus going to Babylon to preach his word uh, by himself, at least, and he's getting kicked out. This is something that maybe happens with the apostles later on uh, in different cities, though not Babylon explicitly. And then Jesus is legless. Now, this is not something that happens anywhere in the Gospels. Uh, But Judas has a vision of his uh, misdoings and becomes the legs of Jesus and so becomes his closest disciple. He becomes the beloved explicitly in this text. This is something that's taken directly out of The Last Temptation of Christ, which is a a famous novel that was turned into a movie by Martin Scorsese starring Willem Dafoe as the Irish Jesus, uh, everybody's favorite (laughs) Anglo-Saxon Jesus. Um, And uh, in in that story, which uh, Martin is pulling on here, Judas is the confidant of Christ, the one who knows the real sacrifice that needs to be made and does the hardest task by betraying Christ. That sort of idea is, as I hinted at in the recap, um, theologically explained away uh, by a verse in John, in the Gospel of John, where it's pointed out that Satan enters Judas when he's performing this act of betrayal. This is overlooked often, I think, in a lot of these kind of fun uh, scholastic schoolmen discussions about about Jesus and Judas and Judas's role in the in the crucifixion and his necessary role in the crucifixion. It does raise a question of whether something whether if because something is necessary it is also good. That's a different philosophical question. But the fact that Satan enters Judas, something that's pointed out in, in Borges' three versions of Judas, is actually a very important theological note on this whole story. But anyway, Judas really becomes the beloved disciple, not John. And 
is one of the disciples who was sent out on the commission, uh, which doesn't really happen in the uh, in any of the Gospels. Judas is kind of the treasurer of the disciples, traditionally speaking, though many apostles are sent out to spread the word prior to Christ's crucifixion and what's known as the Great Commission. Uh, we get his blindness uh, after his rage against Jesus's own disciples, which is the story of Paul and the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen. And then we have this other connection to this 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 notion of the wandering Jew, uh, which I didn't love in this story. But, you know, there is a, a kind of myth in Christianity of Christ condemning somebody to live and wander the earth. Uh, and that person is referred to as the wandering Jew. So there's all these parallels here and kind of too much exposition about what's going on in this story. But I think that those are all the things that Martin is pulling on to give us really what amounts to the gospel of Judas Iscariot. Yeah, the wandering Jew bit here is 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 kind of a joke, right? Because it is Jew as in a Jewish person, so J E W in English. But in the text here, that the Jew becomes short for Judas. It's just it's just J U. It's the diminutive form of his name. You know, like your super best friend, so you get to call him that instead of by his full name. I I did think that was actually pretty funny. And you know, this is not something that's in the the text of of Christian scripture at all. This is just a, a medieval legend. It really doesn't show up, you know, until the the 13th century it kind of shows up in print in the Legenda Aurea, for example. But there's something Martin does also in this story that I thought was actually really quite interesting because he says that Judas Iscariot, when he is living this life as the wandering Jew or as wandering Judas, he says that he lived more than a thousand years and became a preacher, a healer, and a lover of animals and was hunted and persecuted when the church that Peter had founded became bloated and corrupt. That's the exact plot of the life of St. Francis of Assisi, and, and, and the, the time frame works out exactly as well. St. Francis is a 12th century figure, so you know he lived more than a, slightly more than a thousand years after the, the, the death of Christ. Uh, so here we have Judas appropriating not just you know, the life of Christ himself, but then also this legend of the wandering Jew, but then also these attributes of St. Francis. Uh, and you know St. Francis's order, the Franciscan order, still going strong here in the early 21st century. Uh, there's another saint that Martin appropriates here. You, you know, you made a big deal out of this 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 kind of wacky business with Christ losing his legs and having to be carried around on the back of Judas, and it is wacky. It's comical to envision that. Uh, but this is Saint Christopher, right? We just talked about Christopher literally meaning the someone who carries Christ. You know, fur is the Latin word for carry. Uh, Saint Christopher uh, lived in some, you know, totally anachronic time after Christ and for a while um, actually served the devil because the devil was, you know, super powerful. Christopher had seen the devil's power on earth, was impressed by it, so that's who he's going to serve. But later he comes to learn that Christ is actually more powerful than the devil, so he switches sides. And of course, this is the same thing that Judas does here when he gives up his dark arts. He gives up his necromancy. This is what Saint Christopher does in his story as well. And Christopher is so called because the way that he decided to become a servant of Christ was to help people cross a you know, super dangerous river as like, you know, I don't know, his full-time job or something. I guess that's a job that you can have. And one day he helped uh, you know, a little child by carrying this child on uh, his shoulders. And this particular crossing was especially dangerous because of some you know, recent flooding, a spring thaw or something like that. And Christopher almost died carrying this little kid across this river. 
But when they do make it to the other side and Christopher's like, wow, that was super dangerous. The child reveals that he was actually Jesus the whole time. Surprise, right? This is like every saint's story and it has this element in it. And he was just testing Christopher to see if his devotion was really sincere, was so sincere that he would endanger himself for others. So here we can see, you know, Martin, who says in the introduction to the story that he was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school, in fact, was working as a uh, writing professor at a Catholic university when he wrote this story. So it's not just the Christ story, it's the stories of other saints that he's blending into this story of St. Judas here. Uh, I really enjoyed all of that. You know, I love when people draw on those things. And I think on that note, we should actually move into sort of the other tradition that Martin is working with here, which is, you know, not Christian stuff, but it's just the ancient world, his sort of historical anachronisms that he blends here. I really love the way that Martin takes you know, these other elements, the way they sort of blurs historical periods here to situate this story in a sort of, I don't know, fantastical days of yore. I mean, it could be like a theme park, basically, here. Uh, we get the important ancient cities of Rome, Jerusalem, and Babylon. Uh, none of them were especially important cities at the same time, really. But, you know, here in this story, they are. And if all you know is that, you know, the past days of yore is someplace where these cities were important with no sense of like that the past itself is changing, then cool, that can work for you. Judas's empire is headquartered in Babylon. It extends from Spain to India. This is a clear reference to Harun al-Rashid, who is the eighth century ruler of the Islamic empire, whose capital was in Baghdad, which is like right next door to where Babylon had been. And these are the parameters of his empire. This is a phrase that is in fact used about him in sources at the time. And of course, you brought up as well in the recap, Brandon, the the hanging gardens that Judas constructed. This was probably a real architectural feature of Babylon. It is actually the only one of the seven wonders of Herodotus that we can't positively identify yet. Uh, But you know, even on the assumption that it was real and it was in Babylon, it had to have been at least 500 years before Judas lives in this story. But these things are all just being mashed up together to create this real kind of fantasy landscape. And, and you know, you had brought up earlier, Brandon, too, the sort of Arthurian-ness of this story. Medieval Arthur stories do this as well, right? Those are stories in which poets are self-consciously writing stories that they know are supposed to be taking place around the fall of the Roman Empire, but they are mashing it up with all sorts of other historical things and including you know, features of their own day. It's a totally anachronic way of thinking about things. We, uh, people living, you know, in high modernity here on earth are super bothered by that sort of thing. But most humans who've ever lived have actually really enjoyed that type of story. And I think it's neat to see the, the liars here really kind of grabbing onto that impulse. One thing we didn't really hit in the recap was one of the ways in which, uh, Damien breaks down this, heresy, which is to expose the telepath, John Azure Cross, or John of the Blue Cross, which is a strange title, uh, because people are skeptical of telepaths. So that was already a crack in that armor. But then also to go back into the historical record and purge all of the changes that the liars had made to the digital records to make it seem as though there was truth there. This idea of uh, everything becoming digitized and the corruptibility of digital data is kind of a, a pet topic of mine um, and science fiction novel I noodle with every once in a while as I'm learning the craft is kind of rooted in this idea. But basically what the liars have done is go in and change the past 
to make it seem as though, one, there were dragons, they went extinct around the time of Christ, and create these other gaps of knowledge that would allow this gospel of Judas, in a sense, to fill in the gaps. And this sort of notion that there are gaps in our knowledge that God can fill in is a classic a classic apologetic argument that is a defense of the faith of the faith of Christ in terms of people who attack it uh the 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 people who level this argument against apologists call it the god of the gaps so what these liars have done is create gaps that only this can answer in the historical record and i think martin does an exceptional job of preempting the type of question that you just brought up about how we would never settle for anything like this by saying that data can be corrupted. It's a wonderful note in his story. Right. There's basically this whole subplot here towards the towards the end of the story, really, just in a few sentences, where we learn that even the intellectual elite on this planet have been convinced by their own forged Wikipedia entries and won't accept like actual evidence from real scholars from off world that demonstrate that their Wikipedia entry is false. Uh, it, right. it really has right. it has predicted absolutely the current age that we are living in. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a really awesome touch. With that in mind, let's 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 move on to to talking about the church as it exists in this speculative world. And the thing I want to start with is is the history of this church. I really I don't really have a question about the one true interstellar Catholic Church of Earth and the Thousand Worlds, but I do want to piece together the bits of information that are scattered throughout this story. Uh, it's self indulgent, but it will lead to some questions I have in our next section, which will be about religion and lies, which is, of course, really you know what the, the plot of this story is about. So we know that we're dealing with the far future simply because we learn that Pope Vetus the 50th was in office 200 years ago and that the current Pope is Darren the 21st. So we are at least a thousand years in the future and, and probably really way more than that. Pope Vetus the 50th ruled that non-humans could serve as clergy this decision, we're told, caused a schism within the church, and, and we're also told that there are currently seven people who claim the title of pope, and and not just because of the decision about non-human clergy. So there's a real sense that there have really been thousands of years since our own time, and the church has fractured and, and splintered as humans have, have gone off into space. And this church in particular is headquartered on a planet called New Rome, which I, I think suggests that the church itself had colonized this world at some point. That's a story I would love to read. And we also know that there are a, a number of new orders within this church, right? Father Damien's is an inquisition that is prepared to dole out death and violence in order to squash heresy. Uh, and then there is the, the Order of St. Christopher, so an order to, uh, devoted to space travel, as we pointed out. But this really all just is leading up to the first question that I actually want to ask under our heading of religion and lies, which is what are the pros and cons of Martin's vision of how Christianity, and, and, and maybe in particular of how Catholic Christianity, might deal with interstellar civilization and sentient aliens? I guess really when I say pros and cons, Brandon, what I mean here are what are some of the moves that Martin makes that you liked? What are some of the moves that he makes that you, you didn't like? One of the things I have quibble with is this notion of the liars that no greater lie has been invented to like unite humanity or these maybe even these interstellar civilizations so i struggle with the idea of these other types of creatures converting to christianity 
And the fact that an alien creature is kind of the the highest order of liar that we meet. So there's a little cognitive dissonance here with this idea that the the order of the liars also has included these alien species. And maybe that that goes back to the beginning of time. Um, And that maybe there's a certain type of alien species whose job it is to keep harmony in the universe in some sense. I love the idea that, of course, any sentient creature who converts should be allowed uh, to be a clergy member. That's, you know, a, still a question of many sects of Christianity with uh, allowing women to serve as clergy today. And um, you see Wolf deal with this admirably in his Book of the Long Sun trilogy, I think, where you even have uh, f- female robots serving as clergy members and schoolmasters and nuns and, and things like this. So I, I love that Martin makes strange the idea of uh, sentient creatures serving as clergy, um, because that is still a question of the church today. So I think it's wonderful. And I think it's something that science fiction does uniquely well, is to question why it is only certain, it is only the male gender that can serve as clergy. I, like you, love stories about um, question of the reach of Christianity when you get into interstellar travels. C.S. Lewis has covered this admirably well also in his space trilogy, which I really love. And I think Martin is toying with those sorts of ideas here where what happens if you colonize a planet that seems to have no other sentient life on it, and it's reached an ideal of secular humanism that's perfectly tolerant, perfectly interested in leisure and the liberal arts and recognizes the value of work. What happens on a planet like that? I love that he's raising that question here. And I think that's pretty much sums up my thoughts on what he's doing with, with religion uh, and, and what the church is up to in this story. We know that schismatics and fractionalism have plagued the church. Um, and I think that is only natural when that not only happens on a planet of 7 billion people, but when you're colonizing the stars and there's no real centralized authority. So I think he's he's covering all of the standard bases of the church in space here in this story and doing a really good job. One of the details that Martin has about the the functioning of the church here in the Thousand Worlds that you know we didn't really emphasize in the recap because it doesn't really matter all that much to the plot is that these planets are independent planets, but the church spreads across all of them, right? It is an, an international organization or an interplanetary, interstellar organization. And so it has to work within the laws of individual planets. And this becomes, this is minorly important to the plot in the sense that on Arian, Father Damien doesn't have the legal authority to execute anybody or to use violence. It seems like maybe on the planet Finnegan, he did have that type of authority, for example. And that's a world building note that I I found actually really, really very interesting. And this is a, maybe a, a stark contrast to the way that Orson Scott Card envisions a similar, you know, far future in, in the, the Ender series in which, you know, the Catholic Church and other Christian churches, in fact, all sorts of other religions have colonized uh, other worlds. But that is all handled in a much more orderly way. And I think that Martin's appreciation for the sort of disorder that will happen if humanity spreads out among the stars, I think, rang truer to me than than Card's vision does. 
We've mentioned a few times that Martin has a little introduction to this story. This this collection of dream songs is, is really great for Martin reflecting on the circumstances under which he wrote various stories and, and, and that sort of thing. So he writes about the composition of this story. And the first thing he says is that he wrote it while he was teaching writing at a Catholic college and was wondering what the church would be like in space. We've, we've just tackled that. But the other thing that he says is that he was raised Catholic and he went to Catholic schools but he stopped practicing, you know, when he got to adolescence or, you know, left left home for university is really what he says. And there's a, a real anti-religiosity throughout this story that I want to take a look at. Not all of it, but just a, a few points. And I want to start with a, a small claim, real small claim that he makes. This is something that uh, that Luke and Judah's son says. He says, your church is good for many worlds, Father, but not for Arian. Life is too kind here, and your faith is stern. Here, we love beauty. And your faith offers too little. And my first thought of reading that line was, is this a fair claim? Is it a fair claim that the Catholic Church, and and maybe I might say Christianity more broadly, offers too little beauty? What's your answer to that? Well, this does segue nicely with my claim that this is a modern, bordering on postmodern story. And what I mean by that is, in part, that modernity recognized the breakdown of these massive institutions in light of these world wars and industrialization, World War One and World War Two. Postmodernism comes kind of in the pre-World War Two, leading up to our current age era in philosophy, and um, not only questions like the grand narratives of our time, but questions that there are grand narratives at all. And in part, there has been a sort of ahistoricism that has crept into a lot of people's thinking that is maybe a result of some of the critiques of postmodernism. And some of that is rooted in a kind of Cartesian skepticism. But what Descartes was doing with his skepticism was saying, let's tear down the structure in order to rebuild it. Um, there, there can be a strain in some postmodern thought that is just, let's tear down the structure. And one of the victims of that has been aesthetic beauty, which for much of our history in the West is rooted in the symbols of the Catholic Church. So for me, it's not quite a fair claim to say that the Catholic faith offers too little beauty when they are the generators of some of the most beautiful, iconic art uh, of all of history. And part of what makes it beautiful, it is those works interpolation into this broader system of symbols that we all recognize and see as beautiful. It's hard to look at a a beautiful sculpture of the Pieta, for instance, and say that the Catholic faith offers too little beauty. I think there's a bankrupt in aesthetic beauty in our current age, in the late 20th and early 21st century. And so maybe Martin is looking at that breakdown of the way beauty needs to be interpolated into larger systems of symbols and projecting that thousands of years in the future and looking at the result. And so on that level, I think, yes, this is potentially true. Yeah, I thought this was an absolutely absurd statement. And you brought up the Pieta. We could also talk about, say, the Sistine Chapel or Gothic cathedrals or choral masses. These are some of the most beautiful things that humans have ever created. And I really glommed onto this sentence because I think this is something that, you know, I don't know if we can... uh, 
envision a hypothetical world con in which uh, George R. R. Martin and Gene Wolfe were having a, a friendly drink together. This is a thing that has really happened. We know they are friends. They write letters. They've co-written some stuff or worked together on creative projects. They would absolutely 100% disagree on this. And I think listeners know that I've been reading a lot of G.K. Chesterton, his essays, not actually his, his fiction. And to really understand a little bit more about Gene Wolfe's intellectual uh, heritage. And Chesterton writes almost really ad nauseum. I mean, he almost won't shut up about how some something that he ruse about the advent of high modernity, and in particular, the advent of the world following the First World War, is that the sort of desacralization of society is destroying a sense of aesthetics, that we're, we are losing that sense of beauty that not just the Catholic Church, but that Christianity, and not even just Christianity, but religion in general actually provides for people's lives. That, for him, is the number one thing that is lost by this sort of turning away from religion, a turning to secularization, and maybe even a turning towards atheism. I mean, he's concerned about the state of people's souls as well, but it's the loss of beauty in the world that really troubles him. So I don't know. I would like to go uh, be a time-traveling fly on a wall to this hypothetical conversation I just invented uh, to, to, to hear them hash that out. I don't know. Maybe we can find a way to make this happen someday all things in time i think <laughs> all right well maybe let's let's talk about sort of the real big anti-religion feature of this story which is the liars and i just have really kind of a big open-ended question here for you brandon some might say i'm punting on the big theme of the uh, of the story what is it that you think martin is getting at by asking us asking his audience to wonder if all religions are in fact made up by some mysterious interstellar organization that wants to fight nihilism with faith in falsehoods what are we meant to take away from this story i mean i think martin really whiffs on this one honestly it's like somebody threw him an underhand pitch and he just like swung the threw the bat back into the into the bleachers somehow i mean i just i feel like this is the one really off note for me in this story because as I brought up i think twice so far he's really dealing with the question of the noble lie the extreme to which he takes this question really creates massive epistemological problems, which is to say the questions he raises about how we know what we know cannot be answered. To say that the liars rely on faith the same way all religions do, to me, it, it nullifies the question of how they can know what they're doing is good or bad. It's a bad epistemology at the root of this story or the conflict of this story. So I do think when you are dealing with masses of people, there is a, a need for something like the noble lie. It's, it's such a challenging question to answer. How do you get people information they need in order to live their lives in an ordinary way, in a beautiful way that allows them to be free and pursue the things they care about and not have them be concerned about things that are not things they need to be concerned about in order to pursue that sort of ordinariness, which is, I think, a virtue. I think mundanity could be a virtue in this sense. And yet people are political who are interested in what is happening with the elite of their society, how they are forming the society that they live in, and what is going on. And so that that elite 
needs to create certain types of stories for people to live by in order so that they those people could pursue ordinariness. Now, there is some extraordinary darkness to this idea, which is that in order to maintain their elite status, the people who rule create lies that benefit themselves rather than allow the masses to live undisturbed by their ruling stature. I think we see that happen a lot in our day today. It's been a big part of the history of the United States of America. It's been a big part of the history of the invention of mass media. I don't think Martin has a real handle on what he's dealing with here because he takes it to the extreme of their being no way to discover whether or not a lie is a lie. And that is that is the problem. He's dealing with language that refers to, you know, if we have space travel, there must be the scientific method. Truth and lies are now often rooted in empirical claims. And a noble lie is something that is really about the gaps that allows people to cover the lack of knowledge that they have in order to go on without being disturbed by that lack of knowledge. This claim in his story seems to make it the case that this type of organization, the liars, have been around in order to keep people at peace all the time, which has never been the case historically. And the claim that until they find the great lie that will tie all of humanity together, they'll settle for these thousand lies. Well, what would be the difference between a truth and a lie in that case? If there was some lie that were found that united all people, I would think that would be a noble truth and not a noble lie. So I really think Martin just whiffs on his examination of this idea of the noble lie, which is... I think explicitly what he's dealing with. I think I looked at this story a little more personally, uh, you know, thinking about, especially having, having read Martin's introduction, thinking about his own personal story, you know, from uh, being raised in religion and then leaving religion, you know, when he went to university and then finding himself back surrounded by nuns at this, uh, this women's Catholic college that he was teaching at. And it seemed to me that this was the story written by, someone who had left religion because of thinking that it wasn't true, that it was lies. And and really, I think much of the language of this story is about Martin having trouble reconciling the the claims about the state of the, the cosmos, right? The sort of cosmology of Christianity, having trouble reconciling that with modern science with a capital S. And in particular, with the sort of nihilism, right, that, that, that we get from thinking about things like, you know, the Big Bang and the, the, the nature of, of the creation of the universe, perhaps the nature of the, the creation of, of human beings or development of human beings. He was wrestling with that. How, do, how to reconcile those two things? And, well, you can't, so I'm going to leave the church. But then it seems like he's older now, you know, 10 years or, or so, maybe 15 years have passed. And now what he's seen as, uh, as an adult, someone who's maybe had some time to let go of, of of adolescent angst, you know, we've all we've all been through that. Seeing some of the the beauty, the sort of personal 
comfort that people get out of their faith. And I think that is actually the journey that Father Damien himself goes on here, where he's suffering this this burnout. You know, when we meet him at the beginning of the story, he's saying that he's having doubts about the truth of his religion. He ends up kind of embracing that and the end says, actually, it doesn't matter if this is true. It doesn't matter if there actually is some kind of afterlife or if there is nothing after we die and our lives are all pointless. If there are stories that give us comfort, because that's a terrifying thing to know that our lives mean nothing and that there is nothing afterwards, that's really frightening. That's a really scary, stark reality, right? It's a whole genre of, of, of literature that we cover on Elder Side that is you know, about exactly this. And so he, I think, is now embracing the idea that religion can be a comfort against that. And if it provides that for people, then that is a, a, a boon, a sort of good thing in the world. Having heard you said that, I, I do really see that in the story. And it really reminds me of uh, one of C.S. Lewis's great literary influences, George MacDonald's story, Fantasties, where he has uh, an episode in that novel about precisely this, about somebody who decided they were only going to go after the things that they thought were true and that that was going to be the only thing that guided them and then had to soften to that kind of really cynical nihilistic view um, because there's no comfort in that level of truth. And there might not even be truth in that kind of level of pursuit of truth. And I I don't know, I really enjoy hearing a reading of this story um, because I'm kind of like railing against this not quite there dealing with the noble lie, in my opinion, but I think you're uh, taking it on the personal level is really a great reading of the story. And, and there is a lot of comfort to be found in that reading as well. Well, I really enjoyed this story for uh, a, a number of reasons. And I'm, I'm so glad that our, our patron commissioned us to do this story. Uh, it's really brightened up my week to, uh, to, to get back into the swing of things here with this one. I also really like that this story anticipated really all of the other non-Gene Wolf things that we're going to be recording soon as Patreon episodes. Uh, we're going to be doing a Borges story soon. We are also shortly going to be recording an episode about the G.K. Chesterton Father Brown mystery, The Blue Cross. There's a character in here called the Azure Cross. I'm looking forward to seeing if some of these same questions are brought up, if this was actually meant to be a literary illusion that Martin was making that since it's been too long since I've read that story, I I didn't recognize here. Uh, I'm really excited about that. But I think now that we are looking ahead and anticipating uh, what we're going to be recording in the future, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buda. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the way of cross and dragon. Let us know your own theological issues with the story of Judas and Jesus, whether George R. R. Martin handled that well, and what you think about the noble lie or George R. R. Martin's own personal journey of tolerance, uh, as we see in this story. And if you want to try your hand at some of the illustrations of the uh, the Gospel of St. Judas that Martin describes here in this story, uh, I'd love to see that. I love pictures of dragons. I think that'd be awesome. Next time, we'll return with our regularly scheduled Gene Wolfe coverage. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.